0: I noticed that right away. So although we are not the same, we are from the same place. So it's good to be at Redeemer City. Welcome to church. Uh, Just walking in this morning, I saw people who just filled with God's spirit. Like, it's a gift and a treasure to be the church. And that just kept happening as we worshiped together. And then I heard that the church is praying on Wednesday and then praying over the kids. Just don't ever forget this, it's a treasure to to be the church, and the, the ability to be an embodied community coming together to recalibrate and to fix our eyes on Jesus, that is no small thing, and it's no small thing that you showed up this morning choosing to say the first part of my time, which is the thing you've heard me say before, you'll never get it back, and every week we have the opportunity to prioritize and to say the first things and the first day of the week, the first hours of this week, whatever's going to come on the backside, you've chosen to be here and to put yourself and myself under the Word of God and recalibrate our entire life to Him. So thank you for that. And just, I want to fan the flame in you that chose to do that and to be the church. And I just want to encourage you, invite somebody else to be a part of the church or if there's somebody who you have not seen at Redeemer for a while, call them. It... I can't stress it enough. Being together and being in the church, it's a treasure. And it's so important for us as we are participating with what God is doing in the city and in his world, and as we're seeking to be faithful, to not do that alone. So thank you for being here. I get to be a guest, and I feel a little guilty because Pastor Jerome, Pastor Mitch... You all, and Cammie and I, before we left for to take our family to Oregon, we got to walk through the book of John, and that's where you have been, and I get to come along at like the sweetest gravy moment of the story, because if you've been tracking with us, and I don't know if you've been here for the whole story, but John opens his gospel, kind of retelling the creation account. He goes all the way back to the beginning, and he's being very, very deliberate in what he's trying to establish. And he's telling the story. Jesus is at the end of his story. And he's aiming directly at the cross, at the resurrection. And he's seeking to establish this confidence, this certainty in the church that they can be certain of their faith in Jesus. And he does it in a particular way, opening the creation narrative, saying this is not something new. Jesus was there in the beginning. In the beginning, the word was with God. And we saw him full of grace, full of truth. We've seen this person in Jesus. And then what he does is he just slowly unfolds story and miracle or signs. So stories and signs have just been unfolding week by week as you guys have gathered. And what John is doing is just building confidence and saying, look at this Jesus, look at his authority. Look at the way He teaches. Look at the way He engages the world. Look at the way He's sovereign over nature. He's sovereign over sickness. He's sovereign over all of these spheres of our life. And then He comes to the story of Lazarus, and He's even sovereign over death. And then I get to come along this week when the story makes a particular turn. And I just want you to remember this. Everything from here forward in the book of John is under what theologians would say is the shadow of the cross. We're that close to the cross at this point. And so everything that John has done up to this point has been building the case for who Jesus is. And now we enter into Jesus moving into Jerusalem. It's going to be the triumphal entry. So we're getting there. It's John 12, where we'll be. But as Jesus enters into Jerusalem, you can imagine the cross casting a shadow. Every footstep of Jesus now is going to be shadowed by the presence of the cross, deliberately and in a one-to-one way until he comes and is risen on the other side. So that's just a note you can make in your Bible, watching John masterfully through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit provide us exactly what we need so that we can answer the question, who do you say that he is? And that your certainty doesn't rest in Pastor Jerome. It doesn't rest in Pastor Mitch. It doesn't rest in your family or somebody a generation or two removed. But you can say, no, I've opened the Word of God. I've heard His voice and the Spirit of God's brought conviction to me and I've seen Him. I met a man. He turned my life around. Set my feet on solid ground. His name is Jesus. There's no other name. There's no other one and I'm certain of it. That's what John is after. And so this morning... I get to step into this, and the the last couple mornings, I don't know if you've noticed it, but the sunlight in Tampa is changing. And I'm not from here except for seven years ago we moved, so I guess I'm a local now in Florida terms. But the sunlight begins to change everywhere as we hint toward autumn. And it doesn't feel like it. It's still hotter than hot out there. But if you're getting up early, there's a color to the sunrise that's a little different. And by the time we get to August, September... That sky is going to be beautiful in a different way. But I love sunrise because just before the sun rises, you start to see light. I don't know what time, you're a fishing guy, you've seen it. What time do you think it starts to get moved from darkness to light before the sun comes up? Is it an hour before you start to see glimpses of light? 30 minutes? 30 minutes? So 30 minutes, hour before, I just outed a guy with a boat. That, that's like having a guy with a truck. But, so Pat's been on the water. He can confirm this. like 30 minutes, 45 minutes before the sun rises, it's evident that light is appearing. You move 15 minutes in, and I don't know if you've seen this, but there are beams of light that start to appear. As that sun gets closer to the horizon, you start to see beams of light that are appearing and they're streaming across and coloring the clouds and you're starting to see God just kind of painting live in real time. And right at that moment before it crests, the whole sky is filled with beams and colors and it's as bright as it can possibly be in the shadow of the not yet risen sun. Does that make sense? That's literally where we are in John. As we read this, it's, it could not be more one-to-one. The sun is literally in the shadow of the cross, but about to rise and be fully visible. And so what you're going to see in the triumphal entry is if we could kind of freeze the frame right before the fullness of the glory of God is just put on display, that's where, we're, that's where we are at. And that's where we get we get to peer at that together today. So I don't know your I I don't know how familiar you are with the story. I don't know where your faith is. I don't know if this morning you showed up discouraged or depressed and anxious and fighting through something that seems to be insurmountable. I don't know if you have deep questions or skepticisms. I don't know. But what I do know is that we're all here in front of God's word, where His Spirit is just gonna let us peer right at that moment, right before the sun rose and see something of Himself. And the cool thing about God, His word living and active is He meets us right where we're at. So even if you're here and you go, I don't know what I believe. I don't know. I haven't been a part of this conversation. I'm just showing up with a friend. I don't know what you're talking about. That's okay. We're looking at the same thing. This moment where the Son of God is just about to rise over the horizon and you're going to see something. You might be wrestling and struggling. You're going to see it from your vantage point. So I can't wait for that. Let me pray and then turn with me to John chapter 12. God, our thank you, first of all, for the treasure of being together, for the invitation to come hungry and thirsty, for the gift, God, that we can show up in this place, not because we deserve or merit anything, God, but because your grace is sufficient for us. Your voice has been wooing and calling. We've seen your just handiwork all around us this week, Lord, and here we are to come face-to-face with you through your Word and your Spirit. So I pray, God, that your Spirit would animate these words, that you would bring your Word to life, that you would bring conviction and strengthen our faith, build our faith. God, may we be worshipers who walk in a particular way because we've seen you this morning. So we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Go to John chapter 12, and we're just going to peer at this first half together. Uh, Pastor Mitch gave me 12 through 26. We're going to try to stay right in there, but I'm going to cut it in half and just focus on this first part. So, Pastor Jerome took us to this anointing at Bethany that's happened. This has happened on the backside of the raising of Lazarus. And so there's this kind of scandalous thing where Jesus once again has kind of stepped across what they seem are these cultural norms. and They've watched the extravagance of this woman anointing Jesus. So fresh off of that and still fresh from the raising of Lazarus, go back to verse 9, just real quick. 12.9 says this, Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well, for on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. Pause right there. I just want to heighten that, right? As the sun is rising, there's these gathering clouds and that shadow of the cross. You have the Sadducees who are being described right there, a particular group of these religious leaders, and they've already made the decision to go to violence. You have the Pharisees who are tempering that a bit, and there's a tension even between these ranks of religious leaders at this point. The Sadducees are saying, we're done. We're already ready to kill Jesus because of the disruption that he's causing. Now, that's not even sufficient. We're going to blot out Lazarus. We have to stamp this whole thing out. So they've already made that decision, and there's that shadow of the cross looming, but people are the water is boiling. People are interested in Jesus. Verse 12 says this, The next day the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it as it is written. Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had given this miraculous sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look, now the whole world has gone after him. Let's pause right there. Remember that metaphor of the sun rising up? It's so bright at this point that it can't be suppressed. It's like trying to stop the sun from rising. It's impossible. And so these religious leaders, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, that are trying to cover this thing up and suppress this thing that God is doing, it's impossible at this point. And that particular ray of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead is so bright and piercing and has so transformed people's visions and illuminated something of the invisible and the visible realm that they know it can't be stopped. So you saw that movement. The Sadducees had already decided to kill Jesus. They were after Lazarus. And now the Pharisees say, look, this is getting us nowhere. And they move all in unity together to move towards the crucifixion. What's interesting about this story is you have this triumphal entry. Jesus is entering Jerusalem. It's festival time. So we just passed Easter season and the celebration of Easter. But in the Christian church, we look back and remember what was happening at this particular time. There's the Passover festival and Jerusalem's the epicenter of everything in the story of God and his people. And so everybody's gathered there. And there's this anticipatory air that everybody's caught up in. And they've seen miracle after miracle after miracle, all of these unfolding evidences that who is this Jesus? And his fame, his renown is growing. And people are starting to put together because they have in their mind an understanding of exactly what seems to be happening around Jesus. And that's why they're caught up from this ecstasy of the moment in the celebration of their religious festival, but it starts to locate around Jesus. This is akin to, in their terms, they, they have context that's swelling them to the point of bringing palm branches. That's meaningful to them. The shouts of Hosanna, that's meaningful to them. For us, it may be a little bit foreign. We don't see exactly what's going on. Even the disciples, did you catch that? said, so even they who were right there standing, watching Jesus enter in, they have a bit of this understanding from their scriptures. They're watching it. They're literally standing in Jerusalem. They're seeing this man enter. And they hear all these voices of their prophets. But it still seems like, I don't understand what's exactly going on. It says that. And they didn't until he was risen from the dead. I remember when I came to Tampa, you all had this festival uh, called Gasparilla. And people started talking about, oh, it's crazy, and they shut down Hyde Park, and there's fences that go over this part of the city, and you don't want to be anywhere south of Gandhi or south of Kennedy because you're never going to get out of there. There's going to be beads and pirates and cups and things. None of that meant anything to me. I was a total outsider. So when people said that procession was going to march up Bayshore and land where the pirate ship is parked, that doesn't mean anything to me. I don't know what you're talking about, but to that city, to this city, you know exactly what it means to say a crew is moving from the south of Bayshore to the center of the city. That has significance to you, that it has no significance to me. For the Jewish people participating, watching carefully to Jesus, the fact that Jesus is coming from Bethany and entering Jerusalem is charged. That alone is charged. And when we start to get an understanding of exactly what they might have been picking up on, we go, no wonder that this moment was this mixture of incredible excitement and yet this mysterious not knowing exactly what's happening. If you're familiar with the prophet Ezekiel, Ezekiel's prophecy, Ezekiel was a prophet who spoke directly to God's people, to the Israelite people, the Jewish people, and Ezekiel had told of a day when the glory would leave the temple. Devastating pronouncement. Because of idolatry and because of sin, Ezekiel had spoken to God's people and prophesied of a man scooping up coal, taking the glory, and it was departing above these cherubim. It's amazing. You can read that in Ezekiel 10. The glory departing. And so in the story of God's people, there was this incredible weight that rested on them because there was a prophecy against even God's people that said, because of idolatry, because of sin, the glory of God was actually going to be removed from the temple. If you read Second Samuel, you know the Chronicles, you know the story of the kings. It wasn't just the priests in the temple, but you had the kingly line. The kings had been corrupted as well. And so there's prophecies against the kings. And the prophecies against the kings and the kingdoms are because of idolatry, because of unfaithfulness. There was going to be a decline. There was going to be devastation and exile and all of these things that would happen. And so the Jewish people in their story knew that there was deep problematic trouble in the temple and at the seat of government, there was no priest that was pure enough, there was no lineage that was undefiled by sin. The same is true for the kings. The kings and the priests have both been touched by sin and it 's brought devastation, exile, slavery, all expulsion. The glory of the god of God has been removed from the temple. This is the story that they knew intimately what 's amazing about ezekiel 's prophecy i I want to take you there i didn't ask you guys to put this so don't worry about this you can find this in ezekiel chapter 43 but there's not only a promise that the glory is going to depart the temple there's a prophecy that the glory is going to return to the temple and that's where this story starts to take on a particular weight so ezekiel 43 says this then the man brought me to the gate facing east And I saw the glory of God of Israel coming from the east. His voice was like the roar of rushing waters. And the land was radiant with his glory. And he goes on to describe the glory of God coming back. But I don't know if you caught it. then the man brought me to the gate and I saw the glory of of God coming from the east. Pay attention to this. Jerusalem's the center of their temple life. Their story includes the glory of God departing because of sin and idolatry, the defilement of God's people. That glory had been removed from the temple, and they were longing for a day that the second part of that would come true. They knew all too well that the glory had departed. They were longing for the moment that the glory of God would return, and it would come particularly in this way from the east. Second Samuel and Isaiah point in the same way. All of the prophets are pointing to this moment. So you can kind of pick a spot and you'll end up here. But go to Isaiah if you have a Bible. Again, guys, I didn't put this up. But go to Isaiah and go to chapter 52. And I'm going to read this prophecy because it kind of brings the temple and the king piece together for us. But Isaiah 52 says this, and I want you to listen to this particular sentence. And remember, Isaiah 53 is this suffering servant piece. Who has believed the arm of the Lord he grew up like a tender shoot. Remember, he was pierced for our transgressions. That's familiar to many of us. That's Isaiah 53. Right before that is Isaiah 52. 52 says this, Awake, awake, O Zion. God's people, prophet speaking to his people. Awake, awake, O Zion. Clothe yourselves with strength. Put on your garments of splendor, O Jerusalem, the holy city, the uncircumcised and defiled will not enter you again. Shake off your dust, rise up, sit enthroned, O Jerusalem, free yourself from the chains around your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For this is what the Lord says, you were sold for nothing and without money you will be redeemed. Those are beautiful prophetic words when your people under captivity for this is what the sovereign lord says at first my people went down to egypt to live lately assyria has oppressed them and now what do i have here declares the lord for my people have been taken away for nothing and those who rule them mock declares the lord all day long my name is constantly blasphemed Therefore, my people will know my name. Therefore, in that day, they will know that it is I who foretold it. Yes, it is I. Listen to this. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, to God's people, your God reigns, even though it doesn't look like it. Your God reigns. Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. Together they shout for joy. Pay attention to this. When the Lord returns to Zion, they will see it with their own eyes. Burst into songs of joy together, you ruins of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. Depart, depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing. Come out from it and be pure, you who carry the vessels of the Lord." But you will not leave in haste or go in flight. The Lord will go before you. The God of Israel will be your rear guard. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised up and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man or his form marred beyond any human likeness, so he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see. And what they have not heard, they will understand. Okay. You can start to get a sense. Again, remember, if I'm in the city and I know nothing about Gasparilla, I might be caught up in the excitement. But for people who had studied these scriptures... They knew the story of the glory of God departing the temple. They knew the captivity that their people had faced. He said, what have we had here, right? First it was Egypt, then it was Assyria. Now we're still dealing with captivity. Everyone longing for king and priest to come back in a way that would set them free. We talk about hope. We talk about Hosanna. Save now. Shouts of victory. Is it time? Is it him? Will we finally see the glory of God fill the temple? Will we finally see the reign of God seated on the throne, never to be dethroned again? Is that what we're seeing in this man who teaches with authority that we've never seen? Is that what we're seeing in this person who welcomes all? Is that what we're seeing in this person who seems to command the winds and the waves? Is that the person that we're seeing as the food gets multiplied and he seems to have every provision? Is that what's happening in this person who has even power over life and death? You look at your neighbor and you go, I think it is. I think it's him. I think it's the Messiah. I think it's Christ the Lord. No wonder you pick up these eternal symbols of palm branches that are these lifelong symbols of royalty and power and you rush out and you go, I think it's him. And so they fill the streets and they flood the streets packed wall to wall like gasparilla, but instead of beads, it's cloaks and palm branches and all these symbols of royalty and receiving this king who's going to return back the reign of God and the beauty of God, the glory of God to the temple. That's what's happening. No wonder they said, save now. It's Him. It's Jesus. Christ the Lord. Messiah. They had language for this story, and it was potent to them. And yet, even in that potency, they were like, I don't understand it. Because even if you knew that story, and imagine you were Pontius Pilate, or you imagine you were a ruling religious elite, and you were watching, you're in this tension that we're in this morning, going, yes... You read Ezekiel. You read Zechariah. I mean, I forgot that. I think I did ask for that. Zechariah, literally, behold your king coming on a donkey, on a colt. So all the prophets have specifically designated this moment. So we're like, yes! And yet, it makes no sense. Because we're expecting the glory of God to fill the temple. We're expecting the king to come and conquer And yet, here he comes, O daughter of Zion, seated on a donkey, on a colt. And you had us, Jesus, but you lost us. Because we were there, we were ready, we believed. And now you do this you don't mount the stallion, the symbol of power so disruptive to what we had hoped and expected. Our grandfathers and grandmothers and beyond them have told us that this day would come and we saw every single thing line up. But this doesn't line up. Because we need someone who will liberate us. We need someone who will return the glory of God back to the temple and drive out everyone and every unclean thing. Do you see that? And so here they are. Whole separate sermon, but you can see how it's so easy to be in one moment this and in the next minute crucify him. They say unfulfilled expectations are the greatest source of conflict. We had hoped. Crucify him. Save us now. You won't. Get away from us. You, let, you did the worst thing, which is disappoint us. We thought that you were our liberator, our king, our priest, and you've let us down. That's why it says they didn't understand until he had risen from the dead. And this is where the whole story turns and where we start to hear the incredible, unbelievable mystery of God unfold. And we go, your ways are not our ways, and your thoughts are higher than our thoughts, and It wasn't what we hoped for, but it was precisely what we needed. I don't know if you've ever had the tragic occasion to be with your family grieving the loss of someone when death still feels like it's in the air. Or you've been in a hospital room where you've gone in and out hoping that somebody might pull through, but waiting on every word the doctor says? Or you felt such deep isolation that you feel like a prisoner in your dorm room or in your cubicle? You go, I I feel like I live in the land of the free, but I'm a slave. I don't even know what it means to be a human. See, in those moments... We want a conqueror. Somebody will ride in and fix that all. Write that. Death, gone. Political oppression, gone. Captivity, gone. All these things, gone. We want that and we need that. But if somebody rode into that hospital corridor, came into your family grieving, on a war horse, and just pulled the sword out, something incredible that we're seeing about a contrast between love and power. And you hear Philippians, this beautiful poetry of God, which we'll read in a second, but that he didn't consider Jesus, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he took on the nature of a servant and humbled himself and became obedient, even unto death. And what he's doing is he's humbling himself The God of all power. You've heard many people say that this is the moment, I just fell off almost, this is the moment where Shakespeare is writing himself into the play. This is the moment where the creator is writing himself into the creation story to deal with precisely what was needing to be dealt with. Yes, the oppression. Yes, the glory removed from the temple. Yes, the tragedy of sin and death. But as the, as the creator writes himself into the story, he's keenly sensitive to the actual bondage that people are in. Even though they are shouting, save now, they don't even know what they need saving from. They don't know as they point to Rome, they point to religious oppression, they point to their neighbor, they point to them and them and them. They don't know that as they point that the real thing resides in them and that out of their own heart there's a wickedness that even if they temper it on the outside or they cut off a hand or they turn back from some sin it comes right back the temple of God not made by human hands but the one built with living stones where he will make his residence has become touched by sin and there is no one righteous no not one And so as the Creator writes Himself into the story, as the Messiah King writes Himself into the story to return the glory of God to the temple, to bring the right reign of God back to the place that has lost its sovereignty, or its submission under the sovereignty of God, He doesn't come in and condemn. He doesn't come in and pronounce judgment against them. He takes the nature of a servant Mounts not a war horse, but this foal, this symbol of absolute humility and peace. And he says, I've come not to condemn you, but to wash you clean. I've come to purify the temple. I've come to forgive you of all of your sins. I've come to love you with a kindness that will lead you to desire me to be your king. Will you receive me into this proper place on, on earth as it is in heaven, the temple right here? What's on offer is the God writing himself into the story, not with conquering power, but with exactly what every single one of us, even this morning, needs. The incredible, indescribable love of God that has the power to almost with like this incredible poetic Jedi genius slip past everything that would prevent or separate us from God and wash us clean from the inside out, and present us holy and radiant back to God. What? And you watch every power of evil stunned. So if you're watching one of these epic war, you know, 300 or something, and every warrior built for battle was poised for this contest of light versus dark, and God is going to come and put down all the oppressors and right out there he outflanks us not with power the evil powers he doesn't outflank us with power but his love which is able to permeate every hardened heart even down to the stones and there's a beautiful metaphor in that that even if your heart won't cry out the stones think about the hardness of that even this love will penetrate even that ground and the whole thing is going to be undone And the curse is going to be reversed. That's what's happening here. Whoa, right? It's why this moment is so extraordinary. And why I said I'm guilty to get to talk about this. Because it's the moment that you've all been unfolding. And we've been waiting for and hoping for. And we see it. And we have the privilege and benefit of seeing. And I love this about the scriptures. The honesty and the authenticity of them saying at that moment they didn't see it. Because they couldn't. Because it did look like the shadow of the cross was going to be too permanent. It was too hard. But, John's writing says, we lived through that Holy Saturday moment. And we see this now from the other side. From the resurrection. From the rising of that sun. Beaming light on this story. And we know that it's true. That Jesus is our Savior and King. And that the glory of God has returned to the temple. Woof! Now we're ready for the sermon. Because what's true is right now, all of us, this is the pregnancy and the power of God's word that comes right to us, hospital, corridor, cubicle, classroom, home, whatever it is. And there's this contest, right? And there's all of this need for the glory of God to fill the temple and for the right reign of God to be there. And we have shown up before at the end of summer and said, this will be the year that I'm back to church. This is the year that I'm gonna do it right. I'm gonna get up, I'm gonna to go to that Wednesday prayer thing, I'm gonna sign up for growth track, I'm gonna do it. Right? We've been through this before and, it, and we go, and nah, I let myself down. This is what I want us to see this morning is that it is finished. It's finished. This is what made them so incredibly powerfully bold to carry those that good news. Blessed are those who carry the gospel, the good tidings of great joy because what's being said is the glory of God returned but not to a place, Jerusalem, although it did, right? But they're saying in the person of Jesus, the glory of God has come back and it will never depart. The temple broken, the curtain torn, God himself, priest, no more sacrifice, read Hebrews, over and over and over, read Hebrews, and go, I see what's happening, Christ is all in all, the vision is Jesus, it is not by works, it is not by anything that we attain, but we get to marvel at this, We get to marvel at this mystery that historically took place as Jesus walked in the shadow of the cross, suffered as a servant, and was raised, defeating and conquering death by His love, which is the most powerful part of the arm of God that reached out and said, I will do it. And our response to that is to say, He did it. The Easter anthem, the echo of Easter, He's risen indeed. He's risen indeed. And it is well with my soul, not because my I purify this thing and I scrub this thing so hard. It is well with my soul because Jesus has taken residence once again in the life of His temple. He dwells in this place and I've, his his reign and rule although it doesn't look like he's sovereign over all the things of this world i've really realized already because of the contest between love and power that there's a visible and an invisible world and the kingdom of the world doesn't operate like the kingdom of god and he reigns sovereign over even death and so i can fully enter my rest is the whole promise praise god for Palm Sunday. Praise God for what he accomplished. And I'm so thankful that we have the testimony that John's given us. So that we can sit here today. Receiving and peering and beholding the glory of God. Saying it is finished. The glory of God is returned to the temple in the person of Jesus. He is king of kings and lord of lords. He is the one on David's throne who it was promised there will never be another. It's finished. It's finished. And so the question becomes for us, not will we try to lay hold of those promises and make them true, but will we be people who are worshipers of this God who loves his creation so much that he would write him into the story and finish what we could never finish. What no king or priest could ever accomplish. He did. It's why Christianity is so unique among all world religions. We're not talking about ethics or therapy or strategy or neighbor love. All of those things are downstream of it. But what we're talking about is the invisible and in the, in, in the visible world being brought back into harmony. God, I will be your God. You will be my people because I will finish it for you. Nothing can accomplish that. No one can accomplish that except the person of Jesus. Which is why the incarnation, the life, death, and burial and resurrection of Jesus are the central things, the tenets of our faith. And it's why we preach Christ and Him crucified and the cross is the sign not of Rome's dominating power that would win the contest, but where the place where love became the highest power conquering even that. And so we boldly wear it. You might have a cross necklace on this morning. It's a testimony To the love of God conquering the power of sin and death. And we reside in some ways in the shadow of the cross, but it's on the other side. Because the sun is risen and is now seated on the throne. And we are looking back at a risen Jesus and we see the cross. And for us, the cross has great significance and meaning because it points us directly to the place precisely where God's love was poured out to the very end. A few weeks ago, Pastor Mitch said, who do you say that he is? Who do you say that he is? I hope this morning, by just touching on those promises that the prophets were speaking to God's people, that you have confidence to say, no, when I say that he's Christ the Lord, he's king and priest, he's the son of God and that my affection and allegiance will never lie anywhere else because who could save us from this body of death, but the one who took on this body of death and buried it and was risen again. And the invitation he makes is for us to be united with him by grace through faith. So I want to close with this. You are not separate from that. When you place your faith in Jesus, what is very, what is happening in a very real sense, this is why the marriage metaphor, the parent-child metaphor, the ones that come in scripture, is that when Jesus says, come all who are weary and thirsty, what he says is, take my yoke upon you, let my arms be wrapped around you. The whole Jewish marriage spectacle is the word that comes at the festival comes to mind is the bride and christ are united and everything that is Christ's is credited to the church is credited to those who have trusted jesus as their savior and king and the moment that you see and recognize jesus and say yes i want a conqueror to solve all these things but my deep need is for your love to come and make me new with all things that you promise to make new And I see that only you have the power in your incredible love to do that. Come and make your home in me. I want the glory of God to fill this temple. I want you to be king and priest. When we receive that incredible invitation, he wraps his arm around us. We are wedded to the king. And everything that is his becomes ours. This is an extraordinary reality. This is why we get to say we don't work for it or earn it because Christ is all in all. And we're united with Christ by grace through faith, by the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit, the love of God poured into us, go to Romans, and making us one with Christ. So this morning, if you find yourself in that place of need... This is why there's an evangelistic tone every time there's preaching. Because we say, I don't know if you find yourself united with this Christ. But I want you to know that he's come, not to conquer and condemn, but he's come to pour that love directly into you and to unite his life with yours. That you might be another part of this temple that he's filling with his glory. That you might be another heir to this kingdom of which he reigns sovereign. And you say, well, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be included, to have that life poured into me? And he says, I want to pour that life into you. It's why I came. It's why I died. And if you will receive me, I will make my home in you. So that might be you this morning. And you might be around religion, around church a long time. Many of us have been. And we go, for some reason... I heard him knocking this morning and saying he wanted to make his home in me and I get it. Praise God. My prayer, and I'll close with it, is we'll just say, please make your home in me. I receive you as my king, my priest, fill this temple with glory. And then we rise and go. And as we rise and go, we don't rise and go to try to make this true. It is true. That's why it's good news of great joy. It is true. But the invitation we have as we rise and we go is that we might keep in step with the spirit who began his good work in us, not by conquering top-down power, but by filling us with his love. And so the invitation is to keep in step with this one who's united his life with us and to walk in his way. And that's where I'll close with Philippians 2. If we can put that up, we'll just read it. But this is the way in which he walks. Philippians 2.6 says, or five, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. He took on the nature of a servant. He was found in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient even to death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is Jesus entering Palm Sunday. And rising from the grave and pouring that life into each one of us as the church. And the invitation is first to receive and to rest in what he's done. And then to rise and go. And the way we rise and go is not with power, but with love. And so I would challenge you and encourage you in this. As he makes his home in you. And as the glory of God fills this temple. And the reign of God is sovereign over your life. Keep in step with his spirit that is overcoming, not with power, but with love. And so we can walk that same equation and say, well, how do I keep in step with him? We humble ourselves. We don't consider equality something to be grasped because he in us is not grasping that. So we humble ourselves. We're emptied and we take on the very nature of a servant, not coming anywhere to our marriage, to our kids, to our neighbors, not ever lording over, expecting to be served, but the Spirit of God in us animating our lives to say, I'm here to serve. Humbled, emptied, entering into whatever context is before us and being obedient. Let me close this with prayer. I hope that together we saw that glory of God And if this is this morning where you feel God knocking to make his home, then I celebrate that. Please come tell me. And for those of us who want to respond with worship and walk in this way, let's just say yes to the Spirit of God keeping us in step with his love. Father, thank you for your word that comes alive through your Spirit. Every time we turn and we look to you, I thank you that this morning, God, you have opened your heart and invited all who are weary and all who are thirsty, all who are hungry, all who find themselves in need of that Savior and King that we've all longed and hoped would set things right. God, this morning we see you. And for those of us who have heard this and heard this and we've been in the crowds and we've been excited, Lord, but we've never heard you so clearly desire to make your home in us, We say, yes, God, would you make your home in us? We confess that we have been touched by sin and we pray that your glory would return to your temple and that you would reign over our lives by your grace through your faith. Father, animate us with your spirit. Send us out, not with power, not puffed up, Lord, but incredibly grateful and hungry to keep in step with your spirit pray that you'd be glorified in our lives and in our families and in this church, Lord, that it would, your glory would fill the temple and it would be radiant and that many would see and fear and know that you are God in Jesus' name.